Hi, this is Lori Key, and you're joining me for Sociology 9021, an advanced seminar on qualitative research methods. I am joined by my co-hosts, Lucy and Chewbacca. Uh, you'll be happy to hear that only Chewbacca is sleeping on the back of the sofa, which is a good thing, because as you may recall, Lucy fell off the other day. Um, Chewie's pretty stable up there. However, he's facing towards the window to the street nearby, which means he might have to go into six pound Rottweiler mode and protect the house from some sort of a Chihuahua uh, poodle mix. So you've been warned. We are subject to interruptions on this podcast. First, sorry, this, um, I've been podcasting a lot lately too. You, hey, maybe you are listening to this in audio form. Today's topic is historical research methods. I think historical sociology now perhaps more than ever, should be having its moment as a, as a interest area for sociologists and historical methods as a avenue for understanding current happenings. Uh, the slide I've got up here is historical research methods, and then of course you see, beware, young and old people in all walks of life. Um, this may be handed you by the friendly stranger it contains the killer drug marijuana, a powerful narcotic in which lurks murder, insanity, and death. Uh, this is a ad of the Interstate Narcotic Association. I can't remember when this one was produced. I think it was about the 1920s. But of course, there was an entire genre of film in the 1920s, which I doubt any of you have seen. Uh, it, was, it was around... Um, reefer madness and of course it was propaganda around marijuana in particular and this idea that uh, this powerful narcotic will cause insanity it will cause loose morals and then insanity well you know here in 2020 Canadians are laughing about this because of course marijuana is been decriminalized and I can go down the street well it's a little bit further than down the street but I can go and buy cannabis and cannabinoid products no problem. And that's also the same case in many parts of the U.S. as well. Uh, I'm thinking of Cal parts of California, for example. I think pretty much all of California. But anyway, I digress. The thing is, what's been, what was interesting about this was the fear and around decriminalization. And, you know, some of these old ideas were popping up. Uh, there was a big concern that you know, marijuana is the gateway drug to harder narcotics. We're going to see, and of course, uh, we haven't seen we haven't seen a giant spikes. We've seen giant spikes in opioid-related um, overdose deaths, but that is uh, the opioid crisis is as a result of completely different dynamics that have nothing to do with marijuana. So you know, I, I think a, perhaps even a better example of the importance or the salience of understanding history to, um, to understand the present, we could talk about, we could talk about the whole movement, uh, particularly in the US, around uh, removing statues associated with, um, particularly around the quote-unquote Confederate cause or uh, the, the, the southern portion of the Civil War. We could also talk about um, anti-racist groups wanting the removal of statues and other symbols associated with other forms of uh, historic oppression. And not just 
you know, around slavery and African Americans, but also we could talk about the genocides in Canada and the United States against indigenous populations and so on. And a lot, and what's been interesting around a lot of this is, and I'm focusing in particular on a lot of the Confederate statues in the U.S. is this. Most people that, you know, are getting upset about the, the quote-unquote rebel flag and, oh, how can you remove the flag and this is, you know, you're discriminating against Southerners. Well, the reality is, first of all, with respect to the flag, you have, again, understanding the historical context is important. That flag in the U.S. was associated with a treasonous act, the, the secession of the South from the from the U.S. of A., from the United States of America. And that's what, you know, that, that move to succeed is, and the declaration of war was what started the Civil War, which cost, I mean, you know, I'm not a big expert on, on the Civil War. I guess I should get back to the reading, uh, finishing the Ken Burns documentary on this. Uh, but it killed, I want, like hundreds of, and hundreds of thousands of lives. And it was fought to staunch, to eliminate slavery as a form of oppression. Now I say that because what ended up happening in the reconstruction and the post-reconstruction phase in the U.S. is that you got what was called Jim, the Jim Crow South. A lot of these Civil War Confederate statues were actually implemented or put in place in the late 18, more, more likely the uh, early 1900s all the way through to the 1940s. And so in terms of this history and the historical value of a lot of these monuments, they're actually not that old. And certainly what they are monuments to was, you know, an entire history of oppression. So when people talk about all of these things, understanding that history and the role that it plays in attitudes, beliefs, and values today is critical. All right, let's get cracking on, as soon as I can get this, what is it with me and, aha. All right, so why do historical research? Well, I've given you two great examples because the past tells us about how the present was shaped and where we might go in the future. As an example, why might it be important to study the Holocaust? Because, you know, I, I, I've, been, I've been to Auschwitz and the phrase that you hear is never again. But the reality is while we may have not seen uh, the same levels of systemized murder post-Holocaust that we did during the late 1930s, or, uh, early, 19, early to mid 1940s, we have certainly seen other horrific acts of barbarity on uh, massive scales, what we call today genocides. In fact, the whole, the Holocaust is what drove this idea of genocide as a, as a, as a, a series of systematic acts that we have to, to respond to as civilized human beings. I could go on about this all day about why it's important to study things of this nature. Uh, but I will spare you turning the, me turning this into a five-hour lecture. Sociologists use historical data. This is from Mathieu de Flamme, my, uh, a colleague of mine. 
he says we study it in at least three ways. The first one is theory testing. A theory is applied or examined in various historical contexts in order to demonstrate that particular cases or incidents are part of a more general pattern or process. The second one is comparing and contrasting events. Different specific historical events are analyzed in their unique composition to look for important similarities and differences that could lead to future theories, so theory generation. And of course, looking for causes at the macro level, that is to understand why a particular event happened and the impact of that event at the time and over time. And what I want to argue to you is this. We think of histor history and historical sociology as things that happened in the past. No, that's not true. History is happening today. It's happening now, and we are part of it. Again, go back to what I was talking about in relation to um, statues being toppled, demands being made that they be removed, and so on. People will be talking about that movement 50 years from now in a in, in the context, hopefully, of the overarching story about uh, slavery, Jim Crow South, uh, racism, segregation, uh, the American version and, and the Canadian version and every other version of apartheid, if you will, um, and you know, ongoing systemic racism and so on. So you, if you think about historical sociology as just being about something that happened in the, 19, in the 1840s or the 1920s, you're wrong. It is with us, and we are, as I said, we are part of it today. Historical sociology methods consist of three basic steps. First of all, the identification and collection of probable, that should be probable sources of data. Assessing those, those sources for authenticity and for bias. Documents, uh, testimonies, um, photographs, diaries, uh, advertising, like for example the advertising we saw around the dangers of marijuana, all contain some level of bias. As human beings, we're inherently biased. We all have a particular point of view. There's no sort of big T truth to anything that we do. At best, we can hope for a version of small t truth that is based on consensus. That's what sociologists typically do. That's what scientists generally do, is develop a consensus, as we've talked about, is develop a consensus around what is the best knowledge at this time on this issue. Keeping in mind that we have to understand the inherent limitations and biases of what it is that we, how, what it is that we're looking at and how we interpret it. One of the ways that historical sociologists try to understand, because you can't limit, eliminate bias, but what you do is work with it. And one of the ways in which you, you do that is you use a technique called reading sources against each other. So for example, I might look at that advertisement about the evils of marijuana, and then I might look at other sources for example, that talk about marijuana as an ingredient in medicinal products in the 1920s. Or I might read the diary of someone who was a marijuana user. And so you start to read all these different sources against each other and try to construct an overall picture that doesn't eliminate bias, but tries to get a more comprehensive view of all the different factors that were going on to drive an incident or a process. 
And then, of course, you analyze your data. Well, I've, I've used the term, I've talked about diaries, so the use of diaries. Now, we talk about diaries as a source of data, but I'm going to actually give you a fantastic tip that I learned from Jillian Kreese at UBC when I was a graduate student taking her course in qualitative research methods. What she recommended was the use of diaries for researchers. And I would argue that actually, if you're doing qualitative research beyond historical methods, that a research diary is a fantastic way to log your research process, which will be super helpful when you write up your research methods, but also it helps you reflect and think on the process, which can in and of itself perhaps lead to methodological innovation. So what, um, what Jillian had us do as students was to write a diary about the different choices that we made, why we made certain choices, why we didn't, and um, to actually do a critical reflection on that. And then, you know, it's funny, now I'm talking about this, I'm like, damn, that was a great idea. It was actually an assignment and that she graded. Why didn't, why didn't I steal this idea? Anyway, I didn't steal the idea, but I am promoting it as something I think you will find super beneficial if you intend to engage in qualitative research. Here's an example of from way back when, I, like I said, way back when I was at UBC as a, I think this was during my PhD, I took this course. Um, I did a VP, uh, an archival project going through Vancouver police uh, records. And here I'm, I'm like, this is a diary note. Back at the, I'm back at the city archives, went looking for more dates in order to fill out chronology, not much help. Discovered that police committee minutes are missing for the period of 1892 and 1903. Poked around city clerk's correspondence file for years 1895 and 1901, nothing. Pulled up some records on Fiche from the Major Matthews collection. He had records pertaining to an 1895 investigation involving officers McLaren and Haywood. This was one of the first big police scandals. Unfortunately, the bulk of these records are handwritten and it's very difficult to make sense of them. I'm thinking that the thing to do would be to go back and ask the archivist to let me see the originals since I can't make head or, heads or tails out of the fiche. Here's the thing, say I submitted this project I put everything together, wrote a paper, submitted it for a review, and, the, and then one of the reviewer number two says, well, why, are, why do you not have anything relevant for these years? Bingo, I have the answer. Uh, you gotta love the, uh, I got, you gotta love the diary. So in terms of different types of sources in historical re research, written records, uh, primary documents, such as a person's notes, letters, or diaries, as well as secondary texts, the work of someone who refers to primary texts but isn't the author of those texts. I once did a study of the history of writing on Skid Row, which is a type of district that comes out, it's, it's associated with um, deviants and all, out of the literature in the early 1900s, 1920s, 30s, it was associated with, uh, with deviants. And it has a particular meaning in relation to the deviance literature. And I wanted to sort of see what people had had to say. So I used their, their research, the writing that they did on their research as the basis of my own analysis of what researchers back then thought about these cases. You can also use genealogical research. And I'll talk a little bit about why, how and why shortly. 
Um, photos, we're gonna have a whole big thing on photos coming up, so I won't go too much into it here, but yes, you can use historical photos. Legal documents, oral histories. A lot of history groups have captured the um, experiences, the testimonies of a whole range of different groups. So if you are interested in, for example, Holocaust studies and what happened to survivors, as an example, you've got the U.S. Holocaust Museum, which recorded testimonies from survivors. You've got Yav Vashem. Um, for oral histories in BC, I happen to know that there was projects that were done with pioneers, the quote-unquote pioneers, people that came out uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, and what their experiences were like. So there's oral histories on all sorts of different avenues of social interest, fortunately. Hallelujah for that. So here is an example of working with a primary document. I did a study on way back in the day. I did a study on something, and I've talked about this a little bit before, on uh, what were called victory girls. Back in the 1910s and then again in the 1940s, Especially, okay, so around about 1918, there was a huge issue with venereal disease, what we now call sexually transmitted infections. And what, would what was happening was young men were going overseas to fight in World War I. Before they left, they would go drinking, they would be carousing, you know, there'd be young women there. And um, there would be, the army was, and the rest of the military were reporting high rates of, sex, of sexually transmitted infections, uh, which they did not want because they had a whole bunch of other issues going on, including the great flu, uh, the great flu pandemic of 1918. So local, um, local health organizations, and I'm gonna focus on BC, that's the one I know the best, Create, uh, lobbied and got legisl provincial legislation in BC, it was called the VD Act, and um, what it allowed health officials to do was to screen people who came forward with venereal diseases, uh, allowed them to collect that information and um, basically track and if, what, if they found that somebody who, know, who had a venereal disease knowingly continued to have sex with other people, they could be arrested, charged, and then put in a type of facility like a, half, like a halfway home uh, where they'd be supervised. What makes this particularly interesting is the gender nature of this dynamic, which we see over and over again, including today, where women become the ones that get punished for this behavior and are the ones that are shamed, stigmatized, incarcerated, subject to retraining, disciplinization processes, and so on. In the 1940s, these girls were called victory girls because victory, V for victory, fighting the Second World War, and um, there was the Welfare Council of Vancouver and, another, and other women's groups, and this is another interesting dynamic. Women are often involved in uh, movements like the temperance movement and so on that are trying to preserve the, the quote-unquote Christian way of life. And so um, 
but they do it in a way that is enforcing their social mores, their social codes. And so they work through organizations like the Welfare Council of Vancouver, and they create hostels and other retraining residences and institutions for girls. And um, I happen to find, I happen to have the documents. So referring to two hostel residences, Victory Girls, which is defined in the reports as this is the type of girl who makes patriotism an excuse for promiscuity. Um, this is a report on a particular girl. It says name deleted. I actually had her name, I deleted. And we'll talk about we, you know, the ethics around that. Reported that the VD clinic, or sorry, no, it wasn't this particular girl. So the person was somebody that was involved in the record. Reported that the VD clinic has placed two typically young victory girls in the hostel. Both have been extremely promiscuous, but not for money. They've been picking up servicemen in cafes and dance halls, etc. Um, she pointed out that these are the type of girls for whom the hostel was established. It is hoped that they can be rehabilitated. Well, the underlying issue is, and this is a this is like a set of behaviors we see today. It is about the exchange of sexual favors to eat to keep a roof over your head, even temporarily, for clothing and other necessities. These are not women that are engaged in quote-unquote traditional sex work. These are people who are trying to survive. And you see that a lot among homeless women. It's just, you know, a way to get protection from, from predation on the streets as a way of you know, keeping a root, a temp, like I said, a, temp, a, a sofa, a place to, to crash. So we're talking about something that happened in the 1940s, but really we could be talking about something that is happening today. Now, genealogical records. I'm going to be honest with you. I struggled with whether or not I wanted to talk about this. I've talked about this topic before and some very unpleasant um, comments were posted uh to the effect that i spent three apparently i spent three hours um trying to convince the class i was black which i have no idea where that came from and i'm disappointed that that was the ta takeaway message because what i was actually trying to convey was the importance of family history to understanding social processes and how social processes back in you know, the, the early part in the 1800s, the 1700s, the 1900s, and so on, continue to have residual effects today. So this goes back to that whole idea that, uh, you know, the personal is being, a, uh, is being um, a center of politics, if you will. There is no sort of sense, there's no sort of, when we're talking about social creatures, there's no sort of complete divide between the personal and the social and the historical. So when I talk about genealogical records, uh, genealogists maintain databases of public records. There's tons and tons of public records out there. A lot of people, I've had people ask me before, well, what, ha what if you are somebody who came, um, whose ancestors were, uh, came over, they were brought over um, through slavery. There are 
unfortunately, there are still a good, good number of historical records we can actually trace back. There's a fantastic show on PBS I love. It is called, um, what is it called? Something like Finding Your Roots. Finding Your Roots. And uh, a lot of the guests on there are people of color who have, who've come from, you know, we've, we're all immigrants. So, you know, this idea that, well, they're immigrants, so we can't trace their roots is ridiculous. We actually have very good documented histories for a lot of different groups. One exception is for Jewish folks, because a lot of the records in Europe were destroyed, which is very, very unfortunate. Um, and they were destroyed as a result of the Holocaust. But... We, we do have, um, and it's also the same, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna paint too rosy of a picture here, but it's also the same for a lot of African-American families as well. We can go so far back, but fortunately with DNA, uh, DNA testing, we can actually give people a sort of sense about where their DNA haplogroups and so on come from. So we can now jump past some of the barriers that we have with the, written, with the lack of a written record. BMD roles are the various vital statistics departments. BMD stands for birth, marriage, and death. There is a 100-year moratorium typically in Canada for the provincial archives, but um, 100 years for birth records. Uh, death records, it's 25 years, I believe. And marriage records, I think it's about 50. So you can actually access quite a bit of information including, so if you're interested in doing health research, you can go and take a look at historical records around death and find out things like causes of death or how deaths were recorded or health conditions were recorded. There's genealogical data that's available in public archives that can also be useful. This is the story of my family. This is my great grand, my great, great grandfather, um, Augustus Wesley. And the Wesleys, which is on the Huey side of the family, the Wesleys were black. In fact, we can trace the Wesleys back to my great, 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 great grandmother, Cinda, who was a slave of a man named James Wesley, who specifically, who in his, in his will, he specifically released Cinda and her children from slavery. I'm lucky that the historical documentation for this was um, available in the Nova Scotia archives and that we had family historians who kept a lot of these pictures and also that there were so many different records that we could see successive branches of the family and be able to start to tease out where people had come from. Now, the reason why I tell this story is because his daughter, my grandmother, I have a picture here. Hang on. So this is actually, hang on. Here's one of, this is, so that was Augustus. So here's his son. Uh, no, here's his brother. Get my, where did I get that? Ah, here we go. So this is his brother. So there were twin boys, Augustus and Alexander. And, um, they, as, as you can see, were listed as what the term then was colored. So they were variously, and all the d documents were listed as colored, 
uh, black or African. And as I said, it wasn't just one branch of the family, it was successive branches of the family. But because of slavery, a lot of, and you see this in Nova Scotia, where a lot of, you know, a lot of slaves were brought to Nova Scotia through colonial settlement in the 1700s. And that certainly was the case with my family. And what happens, of course, is that they, they, they were whiter. They were pale. They were they were they were lighter skinned, and you can you can see a little bit of you can see some of that here. And the reason why this is important is because his daughter, this is my great grandmother, could pass on her documents, including census records. As a child, she's listed as black but in when she, in the in the 1960s she goes and she files an amendment to her birth record changing or she asks for a new birth record and she and she puts in an amendment to change her color from black to white now the reason why i share this story is because I didn't actually know any of this family history because it was deeply suppressed. And when this happened, when she changed, like when my great grandmother decided that she want she was going to be self, she was going to self-identify as white, it caused a rift in the family. So the family split. And as a consequence, we lost an entire branch of the family, nobody speaking to each other. The um all that family history was completely and utterly lost. And the reason why she made that choice is because the community in which she lived was incredibly racist. And she had the advantage of being able to hide part of herself to present herself in a way that she hoped would escape some of the, that racism. And I, the thing of it too as well is we could also talk about internalized racism. My my father uh, was one of the most racist people, my birth father was one of the most racist people I've ever met in my life. And he clearly knew what his history was. In small towns, it's not hard to find out, you know, who those people are uh, a couple of streets over. So you know, this all plays out in this dynamic of, in the family, but it's part of a larger set of circumstances and social processes that I meet people from Nova Scotia today who have very similar stories. And we'll talk about the enduring racist legacy. We think in Canada that because slavery was abolished here in about, I think it was about 1821, that, that we didn't have, that we weren't so bad. Well, first of all, that slavery was here from about at least the mid-1750s, probably earlier. Certainly my, my family was here in the 1770s. And so that was a good 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 year period in which, and then of course there were other different forms of slavery in Canada, including things like indentured servitude, which if you ever took a historical criminology course with me, we could talk about. Today, all of this still continues to play out, which is why it's important to 
we cover these stories and to share them and to talk about the enduring legacy of, of these processes and the social, systemic, and other ways that you want to um, talk about this massive racism that, that you know, is, is still with us. To give you an example, when I was doing my family history and I called the Nova Scotia Archives to request records, and when they heard the name, the woman on the other side, uh, on the other end of the phone, took a deep pause and said, "Um, I have to tell you." And I stopped her and I said, "I, I, I know. I already know. My family. I already know my family. The Wesleys are black. I already know that." And she's like, "Okay, um, good, because we've had other people call." And they've gotten the records and they were shocked. They didn't know any of this. I don't know what kind of shock they were in. I actually was ecstatically happy to hear that I came from such a rich fabric. Um, that all these interesting, I mean, I was obviously, it was just, I, yeah, as a sociologist, and as a human being, I was really happy. I was really happy to hear and to sort of, like I said, recover and reclaim some of that history. And this is ah, so here's the document I was talking about. So this is a census record, and you can see on this record there's Augustus, great great grandpa, male, and what is he listed as? He's listed as African. His wife is German, but all his children including my great-grandma, are listed as African. And of course, you know, if you look again at the history of, of slavery and um, how this has all come, how this is all mutated and changed over time, it's, it's, it, going back into the U U.S., there was this doctrine. It was called the One, do one Drop Doctrine which meant if you had so much as one drop of African-American blood, then you were considered black. And there were various attempts that were made, scientific attempts, go back to the whole thing about ethics. There were all these different geneticists and social scientists and eugenics and so on that were actually trying to calculate out how much how many drops or what percentage would you have to have in order to be white or black or indigenous or white or Asian or white? And so, you know, it's interesting listening to all this stuff sort of play out. And we still see versions of this today in relation to discussions about skin color. Here is, oh, here's Beatrice's uh, uh, amended registration of birth. Here's great-grandma, African, one day, X number of years later, she is, dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. I'm trying to find it on here. Ugh. I need my, I need my glasses prescription changed. Anyway, on here somewhere. It lists her, ah, race, English, white. <laughs> so again, you think, oh, family history, genealogy records, who cares? There's, now we've got a whole, we've got a story that illustrates, as I say, 
a phenomenon that is not particularly unique to my family. There's my grandma, Grandma Huey. Let's, like I mentioned photos. We're going to switch gears and talk very quickly about photos because, again, I've got a whole big lecture on photos. Photos and other likenesses. And what the hell? I thought I deleted this. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, I was having a selfie moment. Here's some photos. Um, these are all from my particular family. But, again, you're like, whoa, who cares about your family? Why are we still talking about them? Well, because part of the fun of documenting the family history is you get to see how women were dressed for different periods across history and what that tells us about the times within which they lived. So this is the 1930s. This is very typical 1930s. This is fancy, this is fancy for country folk um, in the 1930s. So this is, this is, uh, great great grandma Alma's wicker who was married to Augustus uh, go back far enough one of my branches goes way 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 back the rest of them are like poor people let's just be clear um, but look at this outfit I mean this is pretty sumptuous uh, this cannot have been a lot of fun then of course we get into the Victorians and the corseting and what it meant to be a woman back in the day women and how we view women as a society Fashion is a huge, I'm surprised, I was thinking about this today, we need a sociology of fashion. I know anthropologists do a lot of stuff, but we need a sociology of fashion. Because fashion, and particularly how we dress women, I would argue, and I might be biased on that, um, indicates a lot about women's changing roles in society. From that to this, and her skirts would have still been long, but it would have been much easier to walk, and she would have had a lot less corseting. And then this is from the 1920s, and again, it's a little bit more comfortable. And then we get into the 1960s, and, and this was the 70s, which was the, the decade of horrendous, horrendous, this is probably late, late 60s, early 70s, horrendous patterns. And then Lululemon. So just to give you a quick, in terms of archives and archival terms, municipal, provincial, and federal governments in Canada and abroad house collections of historical documents. If you Google National Archives of Canada, you'll find a ton of really interesting stuff, but also each province as well. And some cities, as I mentioned, Vancouver has a fantastic archive. Within them are housed... Um, Quite a number of documents were collected by the city, but are also donated. So when I when I go on to wherever I'm going next, which is probably not too far, um, by, I mean, you know, crossing the Rainbow Bridge, I will donate any records I have that I think are of historical value to to probably the, the BC archives. Person people who've done different things or collected different things or of historical interest can do that. Some private organizations such as churches and corporations also house their own historical documents related to various activities. One of my favorite things to do is to go to the Louis Vuitton Museum in France. That was fun. Um, and it's actually, it's actually not just there, it wasn't there, I should rephrase that. They actually have a counterfeiting museum. So it's not the entire museum of Louis Vuitton, it's their museum of fake Louis Vuitton. Um, and these collections of documents are called archives. 
So archive terms, we've got the archive, which is the building and the site that holds the historical documents. We've got a collection, which is a group of artifacts, documents collected by one individual or institution. Um, this term has largely been replaced in Canada by the term bond. So you can use bond or collection interchangeably, but Canada, we usually call, we say bond. And then there's sub-fonds, which are small groupings. So, for example, Western would ha have a, there be a fond. If, if we had, um, if the province had Western's records, which Western has its own archive, but if they have Western's records, it would be the University of Western Ontario fond. And then there would be sub-fonds. So there'd be a UCC sub-fond. There would be a social sciences sub-fond. And... Then we get into series, which are groups of similar types of documents within a font or a sub-font. So, for example, UCC meeting minutes um, and that type of thing. Then you've got individual files within these series. And then you've got individual items. Within every file, you'll have different, you'll have, a, you might have a document with, you know, you might have a document about one thing and a document about something else, a document about a third thing. Those are called items. And then you don't get to just go muck around. When you go to the archive, you have to approach the archivist and you have to look up all the information about how the archivist will go and ex access that, the, the file that you're particularly looking for or the sub-fonds, as the case may be. So to illustrate, here's an example from the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which is a fond at the Vancouver City Archive. In the sub-fond, which is about media, all the media they did, I can find a file which was a clipping book. What they did was they took, um, whenever they were in the news or whenever there was any media, they would clip it out and paste it in a scrapbook. So the clipping book, the location was 585A2 file 5. That's the accession information. And then the item, a newspaper clipping from 1935. It seems more complicated. When, I got to tell you, when you actually get in, and I wish we could do this. If we were in Toronto, we would totally do this. We would go to the local municipal archives and muck around and get into some really good historical stuff. I'm t I love historical research. I absolutely love it. There, that said, there are some limitations and potential problems. First of all, and I used the example earlier, the Vancouver Police Department, the big scandal I was interested in, and I had didn't have all the records I want. In other cases, records are potentially dis been destroyed. Like they, they're not, they're partial or incomplete physically, not just in terms of you know the information within them. Here's another one: people steal stuff. People actually steal from archives. The National Archives of Canada, we tried to do a research project on um, on, on, uh, the, on long, long guns, so gun registries. And uh, people had, had gone to the archives and physically stolen files that we were looking for. There are also 100 year, the 100 years rule, which I mentioned. So if, if, if your uh, records are excluded from public access, because of privacy implications, the 100 years rule, that can limit your ability to perhaps thoroughly research something. 
as well copyright issues. So you can't just go and reproduce things, especially photographs. Um, you know, there's potential issues around copyright. Uh, I think that's it. All right, so I am done. Um, thanks a lot, you guys, and I'll catch you.